I sat in mediation meetings and received readouts of other mediation meetings where state attorneys general said that victims deserved nothing, that we deserve nothing because we did this to ourselves. That's Ryan Hampton, former White House staffer, advocate, and person in recovery, talking about his experience on the Purdue bankruptcy case where he was co-chair of a powerful watchdog group. Until, that is, he resigned in protest a couple of months ago. Stay tuned for more. Welcome to the Flourishing After Addiction podcast. I'm Carl Eric Fisher, an addiction psychiatrist and bioethicist. In this podcast, I'm exploring addiction and recovery by interviewing people across a diversity of perspectives. Not just experts in different fields, but also people with lived experience. My goal is to respect the nuance and challenge of understanding addiction and recovery while keeping it accessible for everyone and practically focused on what matters most. If this interests you, please head over to my website, sign up for my email list, and you can stay up to date with all the latest episodes, show notes, and other writings. And let me know what you think. You can find that all at carlericfisher.com. This episode, I interview Ryan Hampton. Ryan is a person in recovery from opioid addiction who's an advocate, speaker, and author, most recently of Unsettled, How the Purdue Pharma Bankruptcy Failed the Victims of the American Overdose Crisis. It's an insider account of the Purdue Pharma Bankruptcy case published early last month. Ryan was a campaign staffer for Bill Clinton and had a career in politics, but after an injury in 2003, he became addicted to opioids, including OxyContin, then heroin. He entered recovery in 2015, as he described in his first book, a memoir, American Fix, and since then, he's been a prominent advocate on addiction issues. For example, participating in the first ever U.S. Surgeon General's report on addiction in 2016. As he describes in this episode, more recently, Ryan was part of the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy case. He became the co-chair of the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors, which is a powerful watchdog group that represented thousands of victims with claims against Purdue in the bankruptcy proceedings. In this episode, we talk about how his own understanding of the opioid overdose epidemic changed radically during the course of the trial. It was a wake-up for him about the true causes of the crisis and how they went so much deeper than the Sacklers or Purdue Pharma. So much so, he went back and rewrote earlier portions of his book. We talk about how this case was a window into understanding addiction and recovery more deeply for Ryan, and also talking about how the stress of COVID and the stress of the case threatened his own recovery and what he did to cope. But let me set the stage a little bit here, because the opioid litigation is complicated. As Ryan describes, there is one massive case called the multi-district litigation, which is where hundreds of cases were consolidated into one in Ohio under a judge named Dan Polster. Some of the plaintiffs, for example, are cities, counties, states, and the defendants are manufacturers and distributors of opioids. Some of those companies are Johnson & Johnson, Endo, Teva Pharmaceuticals, as well as big American pharmacy retailers like CVS, Rite Aids, Walgreens, etc., who allegedly dispensed opioid pills recklessly and then ignored red flags. So Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, of course, was also a defendant in that multi-district litigation. But then in 2019, Purdue pulled a plug by declaring bankruptcy. This removed them from the multi-district litigation and brought them into a totally separate bankruptcy proceeding. There were long and complicated proceedings with which Ryan was involved, and he'll explain more. And eventually, in September this year, the judge signed off on a controversial settlement. So this settlement is under appeal right now, and so it may not be the final word. But in a nutshell, the settlement has the Sacklers give up Purdue, pay $4.5 billion over the next decade toward treatment and other addiction services, and in exchange, the family will receive a grant of immunity from any future liability. 
Also, a very small amount of the settlement goes directly to victims and families, which was one of the sticking points for Ryan Hampton. So a day before the judge issued the approval of the deal, Hampton resigned from his position on the watchdog group. In this interview, we talk about Ryan's experience through the whole process, how COVID and the stress of the case impacted Ryan's recovery and what he did to cope. We talk further about the insider details of the case, some of which were never revealed until Ryan's book. And we discuss how Ryan's thinking changed during the course of this case, how seeing all of the powerful players and looking deeply into the overdose crisis showed him how the crisis is so much bigger than the Sacklers of Purdue, and how cracking down on opioids or drug supply in general is just not the solution. Instead, for Ryan, the case was an education and how systems of power like state governments and many of the attorneys general were not really allies, and how governments failed to do their job in the first place to deal with the problem of addiction and respond to the crisis, and even during the case, how they undercut work to get money into the individual's hands. So it's a cautionary tale with real stories of injustice and betrayal. But there's also hope there, hope for personal recovery and hope for system change, just a different kind of change than what Ryan initially imagined. So if this matters to you, please listen to the end for more on what a really experienced advocate and activist sees as the most important ways forward. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Ryan Hampton. I'm here with Ryan Hampton. Ryan, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Great to be here, Carl. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start with the why. You're an experienced advocate. You're an author. You could have been working on a lot of things. You've done on-the-ground advocacy work. So I couldn't help but wonder, honestly, why you decided to participate in this case in the first place. And was it ever a struggle for you? I mean, that's a great question. I, had, I still ask myself that today. Why did I do it? You know, because I, I think back, if I could have made a different decision, I probably wouldn't have done it, knowing what I know now and what the outcome was. And in a sense, feel my time could have been better spent doing other things closer to home. But the reason why back in September of 2019 that I got involved in the Purdue case was Oxycontin was, was a big part of my story. You know, I was someone who was a victim to, you know, pill mills and irresponsible prescribing back in Florida in the 2000s. When I eventually got into recovery in 2015 as a result of Medicaid and (laughs) a lot of work and a lot of begging county facilities to get into a place, I didn't even know. I mean, I I didn't know what Purdue Pharma was, right? I, I didn't know who the Sackler family were. It was when I got into recovery that I started hearing bits and pieces about them, about Purdue. I knew what Oxycontin was, but I didn't really know the whole story behind Purdue. And when I entered recovery in 2015, I I started losing a lot of friends, roommates of mine that were close to me, people that I love, people that I care about. And that led me on this journey of, you know, what is it that I could be doing? Because the circumstances of their deaths were were really maddening to me. They were getting turned away at hospital rooms. They were being kicked out of recovery residences. They were being denied insurance and they were dying as a result of it. And it led me down this kind of exploration of what's out there, what's possible. And through that, you know, advocacy journey, I started to learn more and more about the different players in the crisis and 
kind of some of the origins of it. And that led me to Purdue Pharma as one of the many targets that I had early on. And uh, I, one of the outlets that I had in early advocacy was writing, right? Because I didn't, I didn't have much money or much platform, but I like to write. And I wrote op-eds, <laughs> you know, several of which I originally in 2016, 2017 wrote about Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. And I started getting responses from them specifically, not kind responses, but, you know, lawyer letters and things like that. And that gave me more of a fire in my belly to keep going. And in 2018, decided with a a group in Massachusetts to a family group in Massachusetts to have this protest, this action in front of Purdue, August of 2018. And we organized it on social media and we had over 500 people show up. It was the largest action in front of the company headquarters ever. And one of the things we asked the company to do, and and I had written a letter to Craig Landau, the CEO, was to essentially divest net profits, profits out of that company towards evidence-based solutions, towards harm reduction, towards recovery support services, towards evidence-based treatment. And that letter went unanswered, of course, never got a reply. But it opened this door of, you know, what, how could we be more involved? How could people with lived experience, how could people who had been harmed by the company be more involved? And and this was really at the beginning of, you know, the, the multi-district litigation, you know, Purdue was being sued and the, you know, in multiple courts around the country, you know, there were, there were lawsuits that were starting to pile onto the Sacklers, And we were looking for, in all these lawsuits, there was government, right? You could see government was highly represented, right? Government was making all these claims against these companies. And I was thinking, well, where are the people, right? All these folks who had been harmed, why don't they have a claim? Why don't they have, you know, representation? And original discussions and, you know, the first discussion started around what would a class action look like? You know, this is before they had filed for bankruptcy. What would a class action look like? How could we get one together? Well, before we knew it, September of 2019, Purdue pulled the plug and and filed for bankruptcy. And that actually changed the landscape where individuals could get involved. Individuals could make claims. And I decided when that happened that I wanted to find a way to, to get more involved, to get a seat at the table. I had called those original lawyers who I had was working on a potential class action with, and they had informed me that there would be a way for victims to get involved, that I'd have to go through the Southern District of New York, that I'd have to put in an application to the United States trustee to join this thing called the Unsecured Creditors Committee. And that's what I did. You know, I thought in the outset of it that I would be able to do some good, that it would be a service to the community to make sure that individuals were represented in these settlement decisions and settlement discussions. But boy, was I, (laughs) was I mistaken? Yeah. You know, thanks for that. Because talking about your own recovery history as part of your advocacy journey, I think is really enlightening. It leads to a, a broader question. I was hoping if you could talk a little more about just how advocacy plays into your own personal recovery. Like I I was thinking about this point in the book where there's a setback 
and your friend Kara essentially says, this work is my self-care and this is how I get peace is by saving other people's lives. And in traditional recovery communities, there's often been a very, very strong focus on the individual and not getting involved in politics and public affairs. And I know you wrote about that a little bit in your first book. So it's not even a question about like whether it's right or wrong to be involved in advocacy, but more just how do you look at advocacy and this type of work as part of your own wellness? You know, I think I have to be really careful about keeping my wellness and and my advocacy separate because they can be in conflict with one another too, I believe, right? I believe that diving more into advocacy sometimes can actually, you know, take away from my wellness, you know, and not and not be good for my for my for my mental health and my my own personal recovery. So I have to keep a fine line there. And I also have to recognize sometimes when you know, the, the, the advocacy and the work is taking a toll on wellness. It's one of the reasons I resigned from the committee, actually, earlier last month. I mean, it was taking that it's such a severe toll on me that I, I had to step back and do what was right for me and what was right for my conscious, conscience. That being said, though, I, I think you could take anyone who's in recovery or seeking recovery without the identification of some sort of purpose or passion, whether that's advocacy, whether that's being an entrepreneur, whether that's writing, whether that's starting a, you know, a company or a nonprofit or working at a, a nine to five job that you love, right? Like, you know, family. I mean, I think a key component to, you know, sustainable recovery is finding that passion and holding on to something that you really believe in. For me, that happens to be advocacy and activism. I do believe that through discovering that and discovering what I'm good at, right? Discovering where I can make a difference and where I can show up for my community outside of the program uh, or the prescribed, you know, traditionally prescribed program of recovery, that has absolutely added to what I guess you could call my recovery capital. Mm. It's something that was a missing piece, a missing link you know, for all those years while I was struggling and looking for help and not knowing what the next day was going to hold in front of me. I think finding something that I could grab a hold of that helps give me self-esteem, you know, helps me find my place in this world has definitely, without question, undoubtedly added to you know, my wellness and my recovery capital. But I, but I do believe that there's times where it's a, it's a fine line Mm -hmm. and knowing when to identify those times has been a process for me and when it's healthy to step back. And that, I, I think that that is a result of just kind of doing the work too. But to answer your question, yes, I am a firm believer. You know, it's, it's one of the, it, people ask me all the time, my gosh, like, how'd you go from homeless on the streets and Hollywood and Highland in Los Angeles to, you know, writing two books? And it was a lot of steps, right? But I think for me, it was really holding on to something that I believed in. It was really finding that passion. It was finding that purpose. It was finding that place in the world. And it's, I think, one of the reasons, even in my work and in my advocacy and our work, that we advocate, you know, so strongly for creating more opportunity for people who use drugs, for people who are in or seeking recovery. 
you know, there's such small amounts of opportunity and runway for opportunity that are, that are created for people like that through job training, job opportunities, mentoring for entrepreneurs, creative opportunities. We have a lot of creators in this community, you know, mm-hmm. if we can give them more platform and space to create. I think that it has a, a net positive impact on recovery outcomes. But I can imagine this having a lot of resonance with uh, just not, not just people in recovery, but professionals, because burnout is such a big topic nowadays. Yep. And within an, a medical context, and I think this is also true in a corporate context and probably in nonprofits and probably in governmental work and you know, choose your domain of life, the burnout is talked about as if it's some sort of like withdrawal from the energetic bank and all you need to do is go on a nice vacation and get more sleep. But I don't believe in that. I don't, I don't, I don't subscribe to that at all. <laughs> yeah. Like burnout, I think is like more accurately and almost always, if not always includes some element of like a moral injury of working within a broken system or the challenge of like coming up against injustice and feeling that you can only shine your light in one little corner of the world. And people or need help di- like with that. disappointment. I mean, like I get, I, I get burnout from disappointment. You know, mm. like if you get disappointed in something and it will burn you out. There's only so many times you can get disappointed. And, you know, that's where it's come for me recently. And it, and it, and it is, it, <laughs> it's not as easy as taking a trip, taking, you know, there, I read something last week about, you know, taking the week off and just mm. like resting. Like, yeah, those are all things that you should be doing and you should. But I think it takes, for me, at least like a full mental reset. And sometimes it also takes almost like a a new project or like a renewed passion in something that lights you up inside. You know, I look at it when I, when I think of burnout, like I literally think of like my flame is burning out. I need to relight it with something. I do want to talk about what's next for you and what happens after the case. But before we get to that, you wrote at the end of the book that you came in at the beginning thinking you could batter Purdue to the ground. And now I was just trying to stay alive, stay sober. And I was wondering about that. Like what, how, how much of a threat was it to your recovery? How bad did it get at the end? Well, I mean, you think about it in the context of time when this case took place too, because it was like all the worst stuff happening at once, right? I mean, we were in the middle, you know, the the, the majority of the case and the, the most stressful parts of it for me were happening like right in the middle of COVID. I mean, shut down orders, can't show up at work. Everybody's working virtually, not able to access my recovery supports. You know, everything's gone on to Zoom. Haven't seen people in my recovery community and and support community in, in, you know, six, eight, nine months. And on top of it, having to deal with just all the madness around this Purdue case and disappointment in it. I, in the seven, close to seven years since starting my recovery journey. I can't recall a time more challenging to my personal recovery than the year 2020. And I think it was compounded with everything else that was going on in the world, but also my involvement in this case. I did stay sober, you know, I mean, spoiler alert. (laughs) It was hard though. It was hard. I had to focus on things Other than the case, I had to be more resilient in my recovery practice. I made extra attempt to stay in touch with people close to me and family and my support circle, but it was scary at times. Mm. 
I think it was the first time that I recognized that those feelings and those thoughts of escape and release are still there. And almost in a sense, made peace with myself that they probably will always be there. I would be lying if I said, I have not thought about using heroin in seven years. No, I have thought about using it many times. Have I used it? No, but I've thought about it. You know, I haven't thought about it as like a real actionable thing that I should do, but I can remember feeling completely stressed out, completely burnt out, let down. You know, those feelings lead to loneliness. They bring up traumatic events in my life from the past. And I think the brain has been trained, at least my brain has been trained to always think about, oh, but remember when and how great it felt when, you know, you could just escape and have this instant reprieve from reality. The good news though, to that is that the brain also, my brain also can remember many times when I've suggested that to myself and what the outcome was. You know, this wasn't the first time that I've had those feelings, and I'm sure it certainly won't be the last. So, what, for someone who doesn't have a recovery practice or is not as clear on that, you said scale up recovery practices. What does that mean? Wait, can you give us some examples for someone who maybe sure. isn't as situated in that kind of framework? I mean, for me, it, it always, A, I, you know, the one constant piece to my recovery practice is community. So, it means immediately you know, engaging others in my, in in my recovery community, in my personal community to talk about, you know, to talk about whatever is going on with me and to, to make sure that I'm, I'm not experiencing these emotions and these feelings and thoughts by myself. I mean, that's, that's kind of, you know, the, the breaking glass, you know, step one for me. Other things though, are like literally shut down what I'm doing, put in my headphones and go on a walk. Like, I mean, that has always been like right up there with one of the best things that I can do. Go on a walk, go on a run, you know, just disconnect for an hour, two hours. Sleep (laughs) is another big one. I have found that when I have these feelings and when I am discontent or uncomfortable, nine times out of 10, I am not sleeping well you know, nine times out of 10, I'm not getting enough sleep. Hmm. Sleep is so important to me and to, to my mental well-being. And connecting with family is another piece too. I have gotten quite close to my mom and my sisters and am in a place now where I can have these conversations with them and being open and, and having, you know, conversations and connecting with family. And I'd say the other thing that has, you know, I may... It, I don't think folks talk about it much, but another big part of my recovery is my dog. You know, I have a, I have a dog who's a huge part of, of my recovery and brings an extraordinary amount of joy to my life. So I'd say like at, at, at the base level, those would be the things for me. Now, does that include like recovery support meetings and things like that? Yes. I am a member of a fellowship that I plug into, but I have also kind of filled my toolbox with a lot of other things that work really well for my recovery as well. Because, you know, oftentimes when those feelings hit and when I do get uncomfortable and irritable and, you know, the thoughts that we were just talking about come up, 
there's not always a recovery meeting for me to go to. I mean, Mm -hmm. it may not be accessible to me. I may be on an airplane, you know, landing in, you know, some city where I'm doing an event or, you know, maybe 11 o'clock at night. So I have found things that work really well for me. Thank you for sharing a bit about your personal journey and your personal practices. Because I think you do that really nicely in the book, talking about the toll of the case, the personal toll, but also like the broader systems toll of facing injustice. And so I want to make sure we talk about the case too yep. and what you learned in the case and your own journey through the case. Can I just say one other thing though about recovery practices and, and pathways? You know, I have really come to understand that there are as many ways to recover. You know, when I when I first got into recovery, I was <laughs> I was very, I believe, narrow-minded, right? And it was like one way or the highway. And I saw how that those thoughts and and that attitude actually pushed people away and made recovery kind of like this exclusive thing. We were excluding so many people. I was excluding so many people by doing that. And as these seven years have gone on, I have found that for me, there I feel like there's as many recovery pathways, there's as many practices as there are people who are in recovery, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I don't believe any single individual has, even if they go to a fellowship, does this exactly the same. I believe, you know, they throw a number out there, 23 million people who live in long-term recovery, you know, who knows if that's really accurate, but it's like the best data we have right now. I believe there's 23 million recovery pathways. You know, I think that, you know, each person has their own practice that works for them. And that's a good thing, you know, and we should study that more. Sadly, there's not that much good data about how people actually recover and the practices that they use. And it's something that I wish that the federal government and state governments and NIDA and others would would invest heavily into so that we could understand that more. Yeah, tremendous point. I think, first off, I hope to get John Kelly or folks like that who are doing recovery research on the podcast to talk about some of that data. Because I agree, it's it's almost criminal how it's been neglected and probably a function of probably a function of how most medical research fits into a sort of acute care model, kind of like a lot of addiction right. research fits into an acute care model. We focus on short timelines and try to fix a problem rather than looking at someone's life course and all of the different cultural, sociological impacts that come in. So yep. we can edit this out later if you want to, but it, just to be clear, your your recovery pathway is 12 step. Right. Yeah. Right. So just, you know, just so it's, it's funny. No, I mean I, I we we you don't have to edit that out. So like I'll I'll just add into that. So I actually make a point not to really like advertise that. Right. So if you ask me, great. Yes. I answered the question. I'm guilty. I'm 12 step pathway. You know what I mean? (laughs) It works for me, but I also feel I don't go out and tell people, Hey, I'm a member of XYZ recovery group or pathway or whatnot, because I I don't feel the need to, (laughs) you know what I mean? And as a result of not doing that, there's others in the recovery community, I found that there's sometimes more stigma in the recovery community than there is outside the recovery community. You mm-hmm. know, that, that there's like, there, there's just this, this race to who's like more well, you know, in, in the recovery community. And as a result of not 
saying, I'm a member of a 12 step fellowship and I work the 12 steps and I have 50 sponsees and I work, you know, and a blah, blah, blah. Folks have come to me and they're like, are you like on medication? Are you, do you go to church? You know, like what home group are you in? And like, all, like, are you really in recovery? And, and, and it just blows my mind. And some of these folks who would, who ask me these questions are the same ones who jump on me for sharing my story and saying that this is an anonymous program, you know? So I, I've, it's frustrating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I wanted to, I wanted to air the frustration around that. Yes, I do practice abstinence-based recovery. It's what works for me, but that doesn't mean that it's going to work for the next person. And it doesn't mean that the next person shouldn't have more options to other recovery choices, because I believe at the, you know, as a fundamental foundation of my advocacy and my work, I believe we need more choice on how people access recovery, what recovery looks like, what the definition of recovery is. Yeah. Thanks for airing that frustration. I think it's an important point. And I hope a powerful one coming from someone who is within that community, the, the notion that there's plenty of stigma within the recovery community. I, well, I mean, the fact that I've had to clear up because of some of my writing and my opinions that I've actually had to come in defense of my own recovery in certain venues that, yes, I am abstinent. <laughs> I practice abstinence-based recovery, but you know, people will assume and have assumed just based on my opinions that I'm not abstinent. Right. You know, and I find that ludicrous. We got to talk about the case because if I talk to you okay, about just general recovery for an hour, yeah. then people will be pissed. So there's a lot of different ways in. It's a complicated case. You, I think, describe it and distill it really well in your book. It's immensely complicated and weird. I thought maybe one one way in was to just talk about the one of the elements that I find really weird. And I, you know, part of my scholarly work is on medicine and law. And so you know, even for me, it's weird. And I'm sure it's still weird for you having been involved in it for a while is that the case is a bankruptcy case. It's a Purdue bankruptcy case. But because there were these funny conditions attached to it because state governments got involved and also because there are these notions of immunity for the Sackler family attached to it, it's, it's much more than bankruptcy. It also like wraps up notions of justice. Right. And so like in a criminal case, it would be about justice. And in a civil case, maybe it would be a little more utilitarian about getting money in the right place. And notions of pub- and notions of public health, too, which was a big problem. So one of the larger revelations for me, you know, getting into the case and then coming out to the other side of it is that the bankruptcy court is not it's not about fact and it's not about truth. It's not about public health. Certainly it's about money. At the end of the day, bankruptcy is about money. It's about dividing the spoils of a company that's no longer going to exist or exist in a different form to make sure that people get paid. And the most powerful get paid the most and get paid first. <laughs> you know, that's that's the simplest way for me to explain it. The problem with the Purdue bankruptcy is that it had major public health implications. And there was a tremendous amount of harm that happened to actual individuals. And the creditors, the the most powerful creditors in this case, happened to be government agencies and state governments. And this was a company and a family that was afraid of these states because they had police powers. So these states were essentially able to leverage their police powers by saying, you're going to write us a big check or else. 
Well, individuals didn't have that power. Probably the most maddening thing to me, and and I have to set the table a little bit. So there's two different cases going on right now. There's the multi-district litigation in Judge Polster's courtroom, and then there's the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy in Judge Drain's courtroom. In the multi-district litigation is where you have all the other pharmaceutical manufacturers and distributors. Purdue is by itself because they uh, hit the uh, escape button in September of 2019 and filed in, in corporate-friendly you know, White, White Plains, New York, where they knew they were going to get a sweetheart deal. In the multi-district litigation, there's no mechanism for individuals who believed or had a legitimate claim to being harmed by any of these pharmaceutical companies to sue, right? It is all government. So the government will recover and it's state governments, it's municipal governments. All state governments and municipal municipal governments will recover all the money coming out of the multi-district litigation, which is estimated, you know, they haven't gotten to a final number somewhere yet, but it'll be somewhere between like 24 and $28 billion spread out by, you know, 15 years plus, right? But all of that money will go to government. Those companies, and not much attention is paid to this because the story is not as sexy as Purdue, right? But those companies will also get releases, right? They're not going to settle for that type of money without being, you know, claims being released against them for any, you know, being sued for anything opioid related. So individuals will also never get to go after those companies. So let's shift over to Purdue for a second. In the bankruptcy code, there is a mechanism for individuals to file claims. It is the only part of any, you know, the, the Purdue bankruptcy is the only part of all of this opioid litigation going on where individuals could actually participate. 130,000 individuals filed claims who had been harmed by Oxycontin as a result of, you know, addiction, as a result of losing a child or a loved one to an overdose directly you know, connected to an Oxycontin prescription. It's a big number. Yet, because government had such a large footprint in the Purdue case, they take 92.5% of the settlement and those 130,000 victims will only take 7.5% of the settlement. That settlement amount for the victims is a paltry $750 million split between 130,000 victims. To give you context of how small a number that is, less than 1,000 attorneys and consultants working on the case will be paid combined, a combined total of more than $1 billion. The attorneys will make more than $1 billion, yet 130,000 victims have to split $750 million. Right. And so let me let me jump in with a clarification here. Sorry to break this up, but I think it's important to note at many points in the book, you highlight the failure of state governments because somebody might be listening to this and say like, oh, well, the states will get it and then they'll put it toward treatment and they'll uh, they'll put it toward prevention. So they'll be fine. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm getting there. I I, I, I want to, I, I have to make this, this comparison though, because 
it goes right back to the systemic discrimination, prejudice against people who are in recovery, against people who have been harmed by these products, against people with addiction, against people who use drugs. If you were to let's let's look at any other bankruptcy. Just get out of like the pretty bankruptcy for a second. There was a car manufacturer bankruptcy. I don't have the exact name a couple years ago where the victims, I guess you call them victims, but the people who had been harmed by seatbelts, right? Who got just as much of a bruise will recover more money than the, a mother who lost her child to an Oxycontin overdose in the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy, which is about $48,000, somewhere between $45,000, $48,000. If you were to, to look at this, if, if it was like a chemical spill, think, and we'll go, we'll just talk about Massachusetts for a second, because that's a pretty popular state right now and Mara Healy and all that, but Attorney General Mara Healy, who was one of the you know lead voices on the non-consenting states, if there was a chemical spill in Boston and there was a chemical company that intentionally poisoned the water of the Boston public water and 130,000 people died as a result of this chemical spill. And the state attorney general of Massachusetts filed a, a lawsuit against this chemical company for intentionally poisoning the water, you know, or knowingly poisoning the water. And it was a civil suit. And the chemical company didn't have enough money to cover the liability because it was in the billions of dollars. And so this chemical company now has to go into bankruptcy, files bankruptcy, right? In the bankruptcy court, all 130,000 families file claims against that chemical company because they lost their loved ones because they intentionally or knowingly poisoned the water. Do you think that the attorney general of Massachusetts would stand up in open court in that case and say, yes, but... State of Massachusetts wants 92.5% of the settlement so that we can ensure that we build a better water system moving forward and forget about those 130,000 people. They'll be fine. The way we're going to represent the victims and do justice is to make sure this doesn't happen again. And we're going to build a better system, right? No, I think you brought up the question just a second ago about yeah, but most people who are bystanders and watching this and consuming this through the media are like, but they're using the money to abate the crisis, to make sure that this doesn't happen again, to build a better treatment infrastructure and you know all these great things. And I'm like, that's great, but guess what? I pay taxes for those services. I already pay taxes for those services. Those are things that these states should have been doing and should be doing more of regardless of any penny they get out of opioid litigation. And let's face it, the opioid litigation, the Purdue Pharma settlement isn't that much money. Neither is the multi-district litigation in the Purdue Pharma. Well, I'll just talk about Purdue specifically. It's it's you know somewhere between nine to it'll be somewhere between nine to ten billion dollars spread out over nine years, which pays multiple creditors. The government's going to take you know five six billion dollars of that. It's going to be spread out between fifty states. In the state of Massachusetts, they they keep saying you know we're gonna we're gonna get no, about ninety million bucks, right? They're saying ninety million dollars in the state of Massachusetts. Guess what? Aiken Gump, the law firm in New York City that represented my committee. Right was paid over 120 million, paid over 120 million dollars for their work in this case so far. That that small law firm in New York City, what's well, a big law firm, but small in, in in context of this case, has already been paid more than the state of Massachusetts will receive in all nine years. Right, like so, it's like it's not that much money. Why are we going to rob 
people who have been harmed by this company of the last smallest piece of, and it's not even meaningful, but it's just the smallest piece of a shred of justice that they can get. Why did the states show up and say they deserved it all? I sat in mediation meetings and and received readouts of other mediation meetings where state attorneys general said that victims deserved nothing, that we deserve nothing because we did this to ourselves. It's unconscionable, the double, the double talk and the BS that happened in this case. So you already pay taxes for prevention and treatment. I couldn't agree with that more. And it, it highlights an issue that if, there, if the Sacklers never existed, or if they went into building widgets and not pharmaceuticals, right. Right. we would still have some kind of crisis. There, there, there are many drug and addiction-related crises that have been brewing over time in marginalized communities. And then also we see that we have other drugs that people are shifting to. And it wasn't all caused by one company and their one right. set yeah. of shady. Like, they, they, like, don't get me wrong. Like, the Sacklers did terrible wrongs and they caused a lot of problem and they probably poured lighter fluid on top of what was already a brewing crisis. But I think that's one of the things also in the public discourse. And I can imagine you come up against when you're making appearances and you're speaking to different communities that like you have to balance that, or I assume that you have to balance that like the Sacklers did terrible wrongs and it's not just about the Sacklers. Right. The drug crisis in this country is way predates the Sacklers and predates Purdue Pharma. I think, you know, and, and I actually address it in the book. You know, if you read the book, I actually wrote it in real time and the story changed about a third of the way in, but I had to go and rewrite my introduction several times. And I think I actually addressed this in the introduction. I had a real shift in perception and in values, I think, on how we approach combating the overdose in, the, in this country throughout the case. And there was a several wake-up calls to me that were happening you know, before I entered the case, and certainly while I was in the case, that this is so much bigger and has been so much bigger than the Sacklers or Purdue. And I think it's one of the dangers. And I, I write about it in the beginning of the book. I write about it in the end of the book. I, you know, I try to make myself as clear as possible that this is so much bigger than this problem is so much bigger than the Sacklers. It's so much bigger than Purdue. And I believe that one of the risks that we run with some of this popular media that we see in books and in shows is that if we just get rid of Purdue, if we just get rid of Sack the Sacklers, if we just uh, you know abolish opioids from the face of the earth, essentially, which you hear people say, right, that we've cut off the head of the snake and everything else will go away. No, that's absolutely. I mean, it will get worse, right? I mean, I believe that this hyper focus of which I am guilty of, like, and I I write about it in Unsettled. I am as guilty as many people in my early days of advocacy of putting a singular spotlight on this company and saying, this is the problem. Fix this. Everything else is going to be great. I believe that by doing that, and again, I have been guilty of it, we have almost created a scapegoat for government institutions and for regulators and for states who've done a really crappy job at addressing the systemic issues that lead to overdose and have led to this just ballooning crisis around the country. We've left them off the hook with providing services because we've kind of fed into that war on drugs narrative. If we just, you know, deal with the supply side, the demand will go away. 
the demand continues to get greater, notwithstanding anything on the supply side, it just continues to get greater for uh, different substances, new substances, new analogs, and the services to deal with that demand aren't there. We're not focusing on it. And spending, you know, we could spend every single penny of this litigation money on building new infrastructure and it still won't be enough. I mean, I think it's great that the president has a increases in the federal budget for SUD and, you know, the new four-pronged strategy that includes harm reduction and recovery supports and prevention and treatment. I mean, those are all positive things, but unless we start to get some real, real money behind this, you know, a minimum hundred billion dollar commitment over 10 years, you know, $10 billion a year. And unless we make sure that the states are spending that money the right way, things are going to continue to get worse. Everybody's like, you know, we hit 97,000 Americans through March 20, you know, March 2020 to March 2021 died of preventable drug-related overdoses. 63 or 64% of those were from, uh, you know, fentanyl-related opioid overdoses. And everybody's like, but it was COVID. You know, COVID pushed these numbers up. And I'm like, no, like you're, it, it wasn't just COVID. Like these numbers have been on the rise forever. Like I can remember in, when I got into recovery in 2015, it was like 45,000. We were like, oh my God, another, you know, this is a historic high national crisis. That number has continuously been going up. It isn't just COVID. Yeah. COVID maybe added a couple points to it, but I think that number would have been another historic high with or without COVID. And I think we're going to, we're, we're looking down the barrel of, of even worse numbers next year. Like at what point are people going to, you know, pull their heads out of their behinds and realize that it's not just, just these pharmaceutical companies. Like we have been gaslit by, you know, government players as well, who refuse to put their money where their mouth is. Talk a little bit about how you get the money to the right places, because you have a history, as you mentioned, in South Florida, the home of the sketchy body broker, sober home 28-day acute care services, but even beyond that, even like the best in the standard of care, and I say this as an addiction psychiatrist, even the best of the standard of care is not sufficient to address addiction. It's not sufficient to address addiction and the full scope of substance use disorders and other related problems. So then, so even if the money could be funneled into addiction rather than repleting a pension fund or some other state level nonsense. What what would you actually do? How do you make sure that it winds up in the right place? Well, I think one of the things we really need to, I mean, there's a, I mean, the, 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 the frustrating part about this is there actually is a, a uh, model to use. I mean, we could look at like Ryan White Act and local control over dollars and how they're spent. I mean, you know, we did it with AIDS, right? Mm. I mean, a similar you know, similar infrastructure that we used on right, Ryan White dollars and, and, and community care, I believe would be a, a step in the right direction. The hyper, I think the, the biggest problem with how SUD money, substance use and treatment recovery, harm reduction money makes its way to the ground is it's through a very bureaucratic system currently and red tape system that's controlled by just a few people. Right. I mean, we have this system in this country that's almost like parent child when it comes to how we get dollars on the ground. In most states, you know, the, the majority of the money that's distributed to the states comes through the block grant mm-hmm. through the federal government. I think this year, FY22, it's going to be like $3.5 billion. Right. And the, that money gets distributed to 
each state. And then each state has something called a single state authority, which is literally one person with an office of a few people who makes the decisions on where that money goes. That is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's nuts. I mean, it, it, I understand it's how we've done things, but like, I mean, would we do that with COVID? I mean, would we we be like, Hey, we're going to give each state an allocation of money. And then there's going to be one decision maker. Like talk, think about like the possibilities for conflict with that. A lot of these, and I think that's what we've seen several states that have been slow to implement things like using evidence-based gold standard buprenorphine, you know, and suboxone. It's because some of these single state authorities come out of the treatment world, old school treatment models, and they, they fundamentally don't believe in it. And so they're going to put blocks to it, right? So when we're talking about massive amounts of money, really my goal, and I think our goal in advocacy is to look at what HHS just put out the other day in terms of their guidance, like those four principles, right? We should be having robust infrastructure in harm reduction, evidence-based treatment, prevention, and recovery support services. And they should be four different kind of parallel lanes and they shouldn't be mixed. Like each one should have their own funding mechanisms and structures, right? It shouldn't just be like mixing and matching because we've seen what happens when you mix and match. You know, I think uh, in the past, you know, we've had treatment and recovery. So like, and, and they've been in, in the same boat. And as a result of that, like a lot of people claim they were doing recovery when they were really just doing treatment. You know, I mean, it, it gets really messy. And then we need mechanisms where these dollars actually get closer to home. There shouldn't be one person in a state capital deciding, you know, what's best for the rest of the state. I think there should be a, a massive amount of collaboration with public health, local es- experts, folks at the state, the single state authorities, But we really need to map out our own communities, right? And we need to see what those needs assessments are. And we need to fill those gaps. We did it with Ryan White. I mean, like, I don't understand why we can't do it with overdose as well. Well, you know, it's instructive that you bring up AIDS. I talked about AIDS. I've talked about AIDS a couple of times on this podcast, but especially with Maya Svalovitz, who is active in harm reduction and during the AIDS crisis. And um, she wrote a piece that I linked to actually in the show notes about how she wrote it in the 90s about how addiction advocacy needs an act up moment, but we don't have an act up style thing. We don't have anything really. We don't have, I mean, we have lots of things. We have lots of organizations. You have an organization, but we don't have that sort of like singular vision or passion or just weight that has advocated in the way that the, you know, the, the people did to bring about things like Ryan White. So I mean, you, you, you talk about this in the book too. I mean, you talk about how bankruptcy court is not the place for people's voices. People are calling into bankruptcy court and they just want to speak. They just want to speak. They want to be able to speak. They don't know where to speak. So where, I mean, how should people do that? If, if someone is say like an individual who's been harmed, they didn't know a lot about addiction advocacy before they heard this episode, like where, where does somebody actually go? It's not even clear to me where somebody off the street would just go. You'd go for help, go for advocacy, go to get involved, go for where? Advocacy. Say someone is like feeling pretty stable and they're like, this is unconscionable and I want to be doing something, but where do I go? What do I do? Yeah. So we, um, 
it, that was a great, that's one of the first questions I had back in 2017, right? Where, where do I go? How do I learn? Where do I learn tactics? I didn't necessarily want to join another organization. I wanted to create my own. I wanted to create one with a, with a bunch of other, you know, folks from my community. And there was no place to go to, to learn, you know, real effective community organizing tactics, like the recovery community has been, you know, really good about going out and sharing stories and, whatnot, but like, we haven't really been good at organizing communities for change. (laughs) And that's what we set out to do with the recovery advocacy project and mobilize recovery at the heart of it. The recovery advocacy project is about teaching people who use drugs, people in the recovery community, people impacted the tactics and the tools needed for effective community organizing mechanisms in their communities. We use the schooling from Professor Marshall Gans at the Harvard Kennedy School, who's kind of the grandfather of community organizing in this country. I mean, he came out of the civil rights movement and the farm workers movement and the labor movement. And we've these things take time. That's really what what RAP, the Recovery Advocacy Project, is about. I mean, people, it's a nonprofit. People should check it out. It's recoveryvoices.com. It's free. You know, we, we're not. We're not membership based or, you know, you don't have to pay to get into anything like we just want to give you the tools. And then we want to connect you with people in your state and your and in your locality who are interested in doing this work, who are also receiving the trainings and the tools. And hopefully you all are going to make some change together. And then, you know, we do have some actions that we take collectively, but we're in the infancy of building that. So people need to learn, right? We need to, to learn to, to fish and teach others to fish and then go out and really kind of burn the barn down, I guess you could say. <laughs> I think, sadly, I, I think the only way to get to a place where we're actually making meaningful change in terms of addressing overdoses, and we're seeing it starting to take place in different pockets around the country, is we literally need to burn this system down and rebuild it. I mean, it is, it is, it is so broken that just putting Band-Aids on it, which we've been doing for some time, is not working. It's actually making it worse. Which is actually true of the broader healthcare system. Of the exactly. Like and, and, and everything. And I think I think that's such a like and we could spend another hour talking about that, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's such an important note is that what we're experiencing in the recovery community and what we're experiencing with addiction treatment and and access to care and equity and, and, you know, equality, all these other issues, these are just byproducts of larger American systems that are crumbling. Right. A corporatized system of for-profit healthcare that allows states and other actors to evade the consequences of their lack of support for things like prevention, community support, and attention to social determinants of care like poverty, housing, access to meaningful work, et cetera. Minimum wage. (laughs) Minimum wage, right. Just the ability to support yourself in any sort of meaningful way with with any shred of dignity. And um, I I couldn't agree with you more that, you know, incrementalism is just not going to work here. But that's really great to hear about. And and I'll go out and I'll talk to lawmakers and folks in the public domain and they'll be like, so if if you could make wave a magic wand right now and you had like one or two things that you could do to like solve overdose, what would it be? And people's like, you should see their eyes just like pop out of their head when I say a basic minimum wage and housing for all. And they're like, what? 
what about treatment? I'm like, listen, I could go to treatment 10 times. If I don't have a place to live and if I don't have money to eat and and support myself, I'm going to be dead by heroin, by something like something's going to kill me. And their, their eyes just blow out of their head. Like, I can't believe you're making this political. I'm like, this is not political. This is reality. We have to start addressing these larger system issues if we're really going to make a difference here. And I stand by that. I truly believe that. It's, it's really inspiring. And it's useful to hear about your vision for, for RAP, for the Recovery Advocacy Project. So if I'm, if I'm hearing you right, it's a, it's a grassroots movement. Your goal is not to right. hold fundraisers and then lobby people. Your, your goal is to make it a grassroots organization with local power. People power, right? Like I, and I've experienced the, the recovery movement and, and in some respects, the drug policy movement in this country and how it's been built. And I think a lot of it has built, uh, been built on AstroTurf. Mm-hmm. You know, like we haven't, we've, there's been a lot of money spent and there's been some great outcomes, but in many respects, it's not sustainable. Because we're, you know, we're flying in from New York or DC and we're going to, you know, Maine or California or Washington to like create a movement and then leave, you know, like we're not spending the time to actually build those communities in those communities, give them the tools and the resources they need to build their own power. Mm -hmm. Well, that ties into my next question, which is what now you're done, you're Presumably, you're recovering from your experiences on, yeah, yeah. on yes. the court, yes. uh, on the case. But what's next for you? So, on top of the case and you know writing the book and the madness of COVID, like I, I actually lost a lot of friends last year, and two that were, I was really close to, and um, it's kind of made me like reassess what do I want to do next. You know, I'm going to continue building recovery advocacy project and mobilize recovery, which are you know, projects I'm, I'm super passionate about, but I, I think, uh, you know, I'm really committed to actually practicing what I preach, which means staying here locally. For me, that's Clark County, Nevada, and staying close to home and seeing what I can, you know, how I can best be of service to my community because things are really bad here, particularly with fentanyl in Clark County. And, and I just, you know, I, I, I feel this need and this desire to keep my, keep my feet planted where I'm at right now. What does that look like in 2022? I'm not sure, but I am, you know, I, I, I want to keep my advocacy here for now because I, I feel like while I was off doing all this stuff on Purdue and everything else, like I had friends that died and um, I felt that my time would have been better spent here working with my community, working on systems changes here than fighting a losing battle in the Purdue bankruptcy. And I think sometimes, you know, I just have to subscribe to the, the thought that, that all change does happen, you know, locally. And so that's, that's kind of where, where my head's at right now. I couldn't tell you where my feet are going to be, but that's where my head's at right now, headed, you know, closing out 2021 and heading into 2022. Thanks for sharing about that. So vulnerably, I, I'm sorry for your losses. It's been a miserable year, but especially people who are connected to the addiction and recovery communities for sure. And I don't know. I mean, you're, I'm sure your work helped a lot. If you weren't there, I don't know that somebody else would have stepped up in the same way you did. And they, you know, I think it echoes a broader tension in academics and policy and anybody looking for social change, which is like, what is the, what's the balance between this like top down, bottom up dichotomy? Maybe it's a false dichotomy, you know, maybe that it's a, maybe they're actually connected in ways that we can't fully perceive. 
You know, I hope, I, I think probably one of my biggest hope, I could tell you, you know, beyond where, where, where I, where I think I'm going to be next year, what, what my hope is though, my hope is that we continue to build this movement that more people get involved because I actually believe that the outcomes maybe in the, the opioid litigation and the Purdue case and maybe in the president's budget and, you know, Congress dragging their feet on a few things and, you know, some, some terrible legislation that we've seen make its way through state houses this year under the nose of just an uninformed constituency around this issue. It's my hope that we're able to train more people, more people get involved, more people get involved locally, that more people continue to become woke on this issue. Because I, I do think that we would have had different results uh, had more people have been paying attention, you know, um, had more people have had the tactics they needed to, you know, go to their state houses, you know, go talk to their attorneys general, hold their governors accountable, hold Congress accountable. It's like that act up approach. I mean, those, we just, we don't have the, we, we haven't had the capacity for it, but it is growing. So it is my hope to see that continue to grow. And I think that it will. We live in a time of incredible political polarization and ideological polarization and any recovery activism is going to be against that backdrop. So how do you, in that recovery advocacy that takes a broader view of, say, social determinants of health and all of the interconnected issues that impinge on addiction, how do you make the recovery advocacy movement a sort of big tent destination where everyone can come together and still play nicely and, and organize toward the same values? I mean, I think we've seen, we've had organizers come from all sides of the aisle and all sides of the spectrum, right? Around common values and shared goals. I think at the end of the day, we've, we've seen shifts from both sides and more understanding from people on belief systems and the ability to kind of agree to disagree on some issues, but be able to come together around common goals, which is ending overdose. And it, it's, it's that mindset in many respects that we need and like we need to be able to solve this issue. Now, I go out to the broader, you know, folks will will jokingly say like recovery is like a purple issue. It really is. I mean, it is a purple issue. I will be the first to tell you as someone who is a card carrying voter registration like liberal democrat that I've had to work with Republicans who, you know, you wouldn't see me in other venues talking to around what is it we do to end overdose. I have met with Republicans who are probably more progressive, some Republicans, I'll say, not all Republicans, but some Republicans who are more progressive on things like syringe exchanges and harm reduction techniques than some Democrats are in my home, own hometown. Like the, the stigma is real on both parties, right? I've seen bad decisions by Democrats and good decisions by Republicans and bad decisions by Republicans and good decisions by Democrats. So we, we have to approach it as, 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 a, as a unifying issue, hopefully. And, and I do believe it is a unifying issue, but I also at the heart of it, right? And I think at the core of this organizing is people who are, you know, just starting to discover the, this movement and the work is you'll hear from a lot of folks and I get hit on it all the time. Be like, why are you bringing, why are you interjecting politics into this issue? Why are you interjecting politics? You're just dividing people. Like, why? This isn't a political issue. You're right. Like, recovery, by definition, is not political. Access to it is. Mm. <laughs> access to healthcare, access to treatment, access to harm or die. Like, you know, these are very political issues. 
you know, access to Medicaid, which saved my life, is highly political, right? So explaining it in that context has, has helped. That's a really interesting framing. So recovery is not political, but access to recovery is. It sounds like there should be a right to recovery. Right. And the right to, the right to recovery choice too. I mean, that's the other mm. thing. Like, I, I believe in more recovery choices, right? Like, I think recovery is a choice issue at the heart of it. I think we've been, we've been prescribed this version of recovery that's very, in many respects, one-sided. And there's all these other choices out there of, like, what could work for other folks. And, like, people should have those choices and choices available to them. Mm-hmm. Ryan, I've taken up a lot of your time. This is really illuminating on multiple levels. We should wrap up in a second. But before we go, is there any any parting words for the audience, any call to the audience or any sort of advice you've received about how to help people with substance use problems and addiction or what we need now? Yeah, I think the one thing, if if you're listening to this and you're impacted or you're in recovery or you're thinking about telling your story or whatnot, I, I would ask if you have the ability to be more public on this issue and speak out about it, please do it. There's still a lot of people in the United States who aren't able to do that out of fear of loss of job, loss of health insurance, loss of relationships, you know, criminal justice involvement, whatnot. And it makes it that much more important for folks who can to speak up for those who can't. So I would encourage you to, to please do that. Thanks for that. Where else can people find out about you, learn about your book, learn about your work? Sure. Un- Unsettled, How the Purdue Pharma Bankruptcy Failed the Victims of the American Overdose Crisis is available at all book retailers on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. You can find it online. To reach me individually, you can uh, hit me up on my website at ryanhampton.org. I'm on social media. Send me your questions, reach out with whatever you'd like to talk about. I love hearing from folks. And Carl, thanks for having me on. I can't wait to read your book, by the way, when it comes out. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks. Talk to you soon. That's my interview with Ryan Hampton. Let me go back and review a few of the most crucial points. First, I found it really striking when Ryan talked so openly and vulnerably about how he felt guilty of contributing to a hyper-focus on supply as a key issue in the overdose crisis, about specifically overemphasizing Purdue Pharma and opiate overprescribing in general as the main point behind the crisis. Ryan mentioned how looking more deeply into the causes and conditions of our current addiction problems helped him to realize it's not just about cracking down on supply. And I want to emphasize some of the real harms to this approach. First, that it hurts pain patients to put unnecessary controls on opioid prescriptions for legitimate pain. Uh, It also just doesn't work well to stop addiction. It might actually increase harms as people shift to other substances. But Ryan also mentioned a broader risk here, which is that the narrative of opioid supply as the main problem serves as a scapegoat for governments and regulators who could be doing a lot more to deal with the root causes and other forms of suffering that are driving addiction. I also want to go back and talk about the numbers because at least for me, it can be hard to parse numerical information in an audio form. The big number being kicked around in the settlement is $4.5 billion. It does sound like a lot, but there are immense legal fees that have to be settled 
And then that money is divided among 50 states as well as other creditors. So the amount to individuals is very low. But another point that Ryan was making was that even the amount going to states is relatively paltry. So $90 million, for example, are going to Massachusetts over the course of nine years. And that's less than what one law firm received just for representing his committee. I also found it really useful to hear Ryan talk about ideology and rigidity within recovery communities. He called this a form of stigma, being attached to one form of recovery rather than being open to multiple pathways of recovery. I think this is spot on. And it's also reflected in a sort of structural stigma, a stigma that occurs at the level of our systems and our institutions. Because in many treatment settings, there's only one kind of recovery still today that is offered as a pathway to recovery. And on that point, Ryan talked about a right to recovery, that everyone has the right and everyone has the right to a recovery choice. He thinks that recovery advocacy can go beyond political polarization to be a sort of purple issue where people can come together around a a sort of deeper and more tangible goal to end deaths, to end overdose, to alleviate suffering. So recovery doesn't have to be political, but access to recovery is political. I really like that framing. And it just emphasizes how many people face such serious barriers to that access. If you're interested in learning more about any of these topics, please head over to my website where you can check out the show notes, sign up for my newsletter, and send me an email to let me know what you think. I love hearing from you about what's interesting and useful, so don't hesitate to drop a line. Also, thanks so much to those of you who've supported the podcast. And if you haven't yet, please help me get the word out. You can send this episode to just one other person who is interested in addiction and recovery. And another huge way you can help is please to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the by far the number one way people find new podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It isn't medical or clinical advice. The content is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have questions, please consult a medical professional. Conflicts of interest are an important topic in addiction and recovery. This show is editorially independent and free from outside funding. For an updated list of disclosures about my work and other activities, please refer to my website.